The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. What about the first century? What were the responses to those who are associated with the story? I mean, when we look at the Christmas story and look at the various people who were part of it, how did they respond? Luke chapter 2 begins this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi came from the east. They arrived saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen him and we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. We know that there are several things that happened that first Christmas. That's Matthew. In Luke's version, we read it this way. We're introduced to several different characters. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke 2, it says, It came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabitants. That was the first census while Quirinius was governor. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David to register, along with Mary, who he was betrothed to, was with child. It came about when they were there. The days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in an inn. You know, when we think about the different characters of Christmas, the first character that uh, we often talk about is the innkeeper, the guy who we really don't know much about. But the one thing we can say about the innkeeper is he accommodated the Savior. He accommodated the Savior. You see, it was an interesting time in Israel's history. Israel was ruled by the Romans. The Romans made the rules. And the Israelites, the Jewish people, followed the rules. Bethlehem was in chaos. Caesar Augustus was the one who needed more money for his coffers, and so he put in vogue, for the first time and only time, the Jewish method of taxation. You see, the Roman method was just a tax wherever you were, but the Jewish method was to return to your own city. And you see, to fulfill the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, somehow the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. As you know, Jesus was, grew up in Nazareth, and, and now somehow he had to get to Bethlehem. And isn't it amazing that God would use a pagan king to issue an order of taxation so that his son could be delivered to fulfill the prophecy of Micah, which occurred about 500 years before the birth of our Savior. You see, somehow that prophecy had to be fulfilled, and it was fulfilled by using a pagan king, Caesar Augustus, to accomplish it. It's the only time any Augustus used the Jewish method to tax the constituency. So God uses this pagan king to do it. Well, if we could be back in Bethlehem at that time, the streets were teeming with crowds that were coming to register. It was probably like a family reunion in some ways. There would be many people coming from different places who had not seen one another in quite some time. And as they gathered together, it would be a time of great reunion, but it will also be a difficult time to find a place to stay. I mean, there was no internet to get on and make reservations. There was not a, a, a plethora of hotels to choose from. And you usually stayed with family or with a few inns that were available at that time. I would imagine the work of the innkeeper and his family were difficult in these days. They had to clean, run, feed animals, gather wood for cooking, cook, and put up with the demands of guests. And on the busiest night of the year, this dog-tired innkeeper goes to his door when there's a knock-up on it, and there stands a gentleman, a young man, and all of a sudden he hears the groan of his wife. It's another contraction. Fortunately, this innkeeper was not all about shekels and mites. He had a heart. You can almost hear him saying under his breath, though, this must be the curse of my (laughs) mother-in-law. 
I mean, the busiest night of my life, and now I've got a woman in labor standing at my door. He didn't have much to offer her or them, but at least he accommodated them. At least he provided what he had. What he had, Although he had no room to offer them, he did give them the stable. And as Mary groaned with another contraction when he offered the stable, I imagine Joseph, being a wise young husband, readily accepted the offer. Don't you guys? And so they head off for the stable. It's interesting, in chapter 2, verse 7, the word for in is the, uh, for in is the Greek word kataluma. Kataluma. Literally, it means not the Hyatt. Not the Hyatt. <laughs> Actually, it's an interesting word. It means a guest room or even a shelter. I mean, this was not even a one-star. This would not have made Priceline or Expedia at all. You could not have rented this room if you tried. But the innkeeper accommodated the Savior. He provided a place when there was no other place. So the Savior could be born somewhere and not in the street as a homeless one. It's interesting. What else do you know about this guy? Nothing is ever said. I I mean, I've got a thousand questions for this guy. Did did you and your wife help deliver the Son of God? Did, did, Did you have any idea who this couple was and who this baby was? When the shepherds came a few hours after the delivery, did it raise your curiosity? Or were you so busy taking care of things that you had no time or didn't even notice? I've got a thousand questions for the innkeeper, but we know nothing about him. There's nothing mentioned except here. In fact, he's not even mentioned. We just assume there's an innkeeper. But what we see is at least he accommodated the Savior. He provided a place for Mary and Joseph. The inn was packed, there were towels to fold, beds to make, water to haul, wood to gather, meals to cook. And we have no idea what happened to him. But he accommodated the Savior. Lots of folks accommodate Jesus. Not overly passionate about him, but we accommodate him. We make room for him. We make room for him. Francis Chan authored a book called Crazy Love, and he talks about those that merely accommodate the Savior and are passionate about the Savior. Chan says many Christians say that they love Jesus and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, a section of their money, a section of their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. We accommodate the Savior, but we're not passionate about the Savior. Chan says lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and they're not truly sorry for their sin. They're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. You see, we accommodate the Savior, invite Him alone, alone with us, but we do not submit ourselves to His kingship and to His lordship. Francis Fellalone, a great theologian of yesteryear, said, To just read the Bible, attend church, avoid big sins, is this passionate, wholehearted devotion to God. Is it? Let me ask you a question. You're just accommodating the Savior, or are you passionate about the Savior? I mean, what does passion look like? I was thinking in my office, and uh, football games had just gone off, and I, I thought, these are really passionate people. I mean, people who get up on a Sunday morning and say, I think I'll dress like that. I mean, that's passionate. And I mean, they, they look for their teams, and they begin to scream for their teams, and who's going to dress themselves like that? I mean, you better have a whole lot of passion. If you're going to do something that idiotic. The scriptures say this. 
Scriptures say, I know you inside and out. I find little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag, I'm rich. I've got it made. I need nothing from anyone. Oblivious to the fact you're a pitiful blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. From the message to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, 15 and 16. When I used to teach this, I called it rice cake Christianity. You remember that? It's been a long time since I used that. I hate rice cakes. In my mind, a rice you might as well go bite your styrofoam ice chest. It tastes just like it. One year I used that. This is, it's been a long time since I've done that, probably 15 years ago. And one year I came up here on Christmas Eve, actually, and right down here were some caramel rice cakes. And they tasted just like caramel smeared on your styrofoam ice chests. Bland, tasteless. How many of you guys actually like those? Come talk to me. But here's the reality. I mean, it's bland. It's tasteless. It's nothing. Supposedly it's good for you. But the reality, many people live the Christian life that way. Bland, tasteless, passionless, rather than a love affair with the Savior. We accommodate Him, but we're not passionate about Him. Or you're passionate about the Savior. I mean, these fools that dress themselves up, I hope none of you are doing that today, these fools that dress themselves up and look like that, you think, what is that about? They're passionate for a football team. They're, they're going to look like idiots and not even think about it. What about us and the Savior? What about us in honoring the Savior, being passionate about a walk with the Savior and following the Savior? Well, if the innkeeper accommodated him, the shepherds accepted him. Bev and I have had the privilege of going to Bethlehem a few times as we've led tours to Israel. And when you go to Bethlehem, we'll take you into a cave. And from that cave, you'll look out on the hillside and we'll sing a couple of Christmas carols. But as you look on that hillside, you're transported 2,000 years back. And you wonder what it must have been like for those guys. What it must have been like for them to, to, to hear the voice of the angels and what it must have been like for them to, to, to see for the first time the Christ child. We've got another video. We're going to watch this video. Bill, did you disappear on me back there? There you go. Let's watch this video of a shepherd's take on that first Christmas. It was a night like any other night, except for that angel. Ain't seen nothing like it before or since. Us shepherds, we don't get a lot of excitement out there on the pasture. But that angel, it was so bright, so beautiful. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Sam, you've been out in that pasture just a little bit too long. And you'd be correct. But that all changed when that angel came right up to us. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I was like, too late. And then the angel said, no, I wrote it down. I need to get this right. Hold on. Um, okay. The angel said, um, milk, bread. No, that's my grocery list. Th- then the angel said, I have good news of a great joy that shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then the angel said, he's lying in a manger wrapped in cloth. Go find him. Okie dokie. So we're all sitting around, and then one of the shepherds, I think it was Steve, he's like, hey, what are we doing? Let's get out of here. Let's go to Bethlehem. So we hightailed it out of there. (laughs) 
and we found that beautiful baby. I'll tell you, I was a different man after that. God chose me. And nobody's ever chosen me for anything. I'll never forget what that angel said, though. The angel said, I bring good news to all people. That means you too. shepherds. You know, they were just a blue-collar group of men who were out minding sheep. In fact, the shepherds were unclean because they had to follow the sheep all the time, and so they missed most of the festivals, most of the feasts, and they could rarely go in the temple because they didn't have time to go through all the cleansing to qualify to being part of the temple. But yet, the angels appeared to them. You ever wonder why? Well, if you know a little bit about geography, you know that Bethlehem to Jerusalem is probably a like, like from Temple to Belton. It's about a five to seven mile distance. In fact, nowadays, Jerusalem and Bethlehem have grown so much, they butt up to one another just like Temple and Belton do. And, and so you've, you've got these shepherds who are out in fields watching sheep, and Jerusalem is closed. And if they're raising sheep in Bethlehem just outside of Jerusalem, it makes sense that those sheep are probably sheep that were going to be used for slaughter and for sacrifice in the temple. So wouldn't it be appropriate that shepherds who are watching these lambs and sheep would be the first to see the Lamb of God? Wouldn't it be appropriate that, as he said in the video, he came for all people? Not just the religious hierarchy and those who were trained in theologians, but for the blue-collar shepherds of that day and today. And so... One of the first appearances to anyone that first Christmas was the appearance to the shepherds. And the shepherds accepted the Savior. You say, Gary, how do you know that? Because if you look at verse 20, it says, And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as they had been told. Others were apathetic, but the shepherds were accepting. Others were apathetic and they didn't respond to the Savior. They didn't even make the seven to five, five to seven mile journey from, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check things out. But the, these blue collar shepherds, that they went there and they began to praise God and glorify Him. The shepherds were accepting of the Messiah, of the Savior. What about you? What about you? Are you more accommodating or are you more accepting that is praising God and glorifying Him, enjoying His presence and being in His presence day after day in quiet times and worshiping and honoring Him as a man of the woman and a woman of the Word, a man of the Word and a woman of the Word, honoring Him and glorifying Him? I mean, when I look at these guys, the one thing I see is there was instant obedience. They followed what they heard from those who gave them the command. And oftentimes, if you were like me, we hear the command or we read the command and we are hesitant to follow it. But these lowly, unclean, blue-collar men in the fields who could not be part of the establishment of Judaism, these lowly shepherds accept the Savior. And they go their way glorifying God and praising Him. You know, this Christmas, for many of us, we've been walking with Christ for a number of years. 
And sometimes it can be the same old, same old. But I love to see the excitement, the excitement on the faces of kids. We got together with our grandkids uh, Friday and Saturday. We went to Camp Tejas where the men's conference is and spent the night there. And they've got a festival of lights and a bunch of jumpy things for kids. And they have, uh, you can, I mean, just a, a lot of things you can do. And Emerson Kate is our three-year-old granddaughter, and she's just understanding the Christmas story and stuff. And I sat her on my lap as we went out to get hot chocolate and marshmallows. Of course, I'd be the one to do that with her. As uh, we went and got hot chocolate and marshmallows, sat her little happens and said, Emerson, you know what Christmas is about? You know the Christmas story? Well, it's about, and she started talking about different things, but she said, Papa Doe, it's about Jesus. And I tell you, my heart just melted. Here's a three-year-old little girl. I, I went to my son-in-law and daughter and said, Man, thank you for teaching our grandkids about the Savior. But this three-year-old little girl, you know, sitting on my lap, her first response, it's about Santa. It's about, you know, that, that all came out. But eventually, Papa Doe, it's about Jesus. And the excitement that only a child could have. What about your excitement about the Savior? Do more than accommodate Him. Be accepting of Him, glorifying and praising Him. This Christmas, this Christmas I want to challenge you. I did this every Thursday morning to my Thursday morning, every year Christmas time to my Thursday morning men. If your family does not know your story, men and women in here, if your family does not know your story, what a great time on Christmas Eve as you sit around the tree or Christmas just before dinner and say, hey, we're going to do something a little different this Christmas. Uh, I, I want to, I, I, Papa Doe is going to share his story. And then you share your testimony of how you've come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine if everybody in this room did that? See, some of your sons, some of your daughters, some of your grandkids have never heard that story, not one time. Why not take five minutes before dinner, five minutes before you open the presents, read the Christmas story and say, let me share with you so that they will know without a doubt that their mom, their dad, their grandma, their grandpa knows Jesus as Savior. Why would you not do that? So I challenge you. And if you've been at TBC for any length of time and you're a dude and you die and I interview your family and they don't know your story, what am I going to do, guys? I'm going to thump you on your dead head before God and the whole world. I, I'm going to do I'm not kidding. I've done it three times now. I mean, I, I just walk up to that coffin and I pop that dude in his head and he doesn't move ever. And, and I'm telling, war- it's a warning. I mean, I, you're la- I mean, we're all laughing, but I'm going to do it. If I go to interview your family, you're part of this body and your family doesn't know the story, shame on you. But what a delight. I've had literally dozens of men come up to me and say, Gary, let me tell you the difference Christmas was at our house this year. Let me tell you what it was like. And you may be the most faithful guy in here, but a lot of time your kids don't remember that story. And to relive that piece of history and give them assurance forever is so important. And tell them not only about the day you came to know Christ, but tell them what's happened in your life since Christ. That's important. And so we have an innkeeper who accommodated the Savior. We have some shepherds who accepted the Savior. And we have some religious leaders who neglected the Savior. 
I, I mean, it's quite interesting to me that uh, if anybody should have been those who followed after the Savior, who knew things about the Savior, who would have gone to see where this was, it would have been these religious leaders. If you turn back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, it's interesting there that the passage I read at the beginning, it says that uh, the Magi came, they began to ask, where's king of the Jews? Herod was troubled, so what did he do? Look at verse 4, underline it. He gathered together whom? Chief priests and scribes. He called in the religious leaders, the theologians, those who would be biblical knowledge of the Old Testament, and he began to ask them, where was the Christ to be born? And so he says, uh, if these guys are looking for a king to worship, and they're saying, he's the Christ, you're the theologians of the day, where is he going to be born? And they knew. They quoted Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they said, it's Bethlehem. Look at verse verse 6 in your Bible. They said to him, it's in Bethlehem, verse 5, just as the prophet said, and then they quote Micah, so they knew exactly where he was to be born. These guys come worshiping him, and as far as we know, the biblical text is silent on any religious leaders gone to look for Jesus. Why? It's a five-mile journey. I mean, you can literally see Jerusalem from Bethlehem. We've been there numerous times. You can stand in Bethlehem, you can look and see Jerusalem. Why didn't they take the short trek from Jerusalem to Bethlehem just to confirm or deny that indeed the Savior has been born? Why not? You know why? Because of religion. Because of religion. They had all the religion they needed. In fact, they loved their religion. They didn't want anything to change. They were the power brokers in the temple. They were the leaders of Judaism. What they wanted was a Messiah who would throw off the yoke of Roman leader, uh, slavery, but that's all they wanted. They didn't want their religion to be tampered with or to be changed, and that's why they're in opposition to Jesus the entire time he's on the planet. I mean, it's really shocking that the chief priests and scribes knew exactly where Christ was to be born. These theologians, this pharisaical aristocracy, they can quote the passage. They've been looking for the Messiah since the time Moses first prophesied of him, but they wouldn't journey five miles, these theological experts, to to the guardians of truth in Israel, that they never bothered to walk just a few miles south to find out if it was true. Because they were satisfied with religion. You know, where we live in central Texas, there are a lot of religious people. A lot of people go to church on Christmas Eve. Churches are packed. Easter, churches are packed. Christmas and Easter, packed. Get a lot of religion. But do we have a relationship of righteousness with the living God? See, there's an eternal difference between religion and relationship. There's an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus as Savior. And I'd be remiss this morning if I didn't ask you if you were more than just an acquaintance with Jesus, but if you had trusted him as your Savior once and forever. I mean, the problem is we know about him, but we don't truly know him. And so these religious leaders, they missed that first Christmas because of their religion. They were so religious. They had the temple. They had the law. They had the ritual. But they didn't have the reality of knowing the Savior. In our day and age, especially where we're located, there are many just like that. They know all about the Savior. They know who he is. They know what he's done. But they don't really celebrate him. One author said, don't celebrate Christmas without inviting the guest of honor. 
See, there are a lot of houses that are going to celebrate Christmas this year. Jesus' name will never be mentioned. Not one time. Not one time. There were two ladies in a very fine Manhattan restaurant, and they were dressed to the nines, and one of their friends came in and said, it must be a special occasion. And they said, yes, it is. Well, what's the occasion? We're celebrating my three-year-old's birthday today. And she looked around and said, well, where is your son? I said, well, he's not here. He, a restaurant like this would not allow a three-year-old to be here. Celebrating the birthday without the guest of honor. Many families will do that this Christmas. I hope it's not yours. Make sure the guest of honor is front and center. Make sure he's honored. Make sure he's spoken of. Make sure he's prayed to. Make sure his story is read. Make sure that the Savior is central in your family and in your life. One author said, lose your religion and find Jesus. That's exactly right. So you have an innkeeper who accommodated, some shepherds who accepted. You've got religious leaders who neglected, and you've got a paranoid king who rejected him. Herod was a ruthless ruler. He was a senseless sovereign. I mean, in chapter 2, verse 3, when it says he was, he, he was troubled, the, the literal word is agitated. He was stirred up. He was shaken. He, he was panic-stricken because of the thought of a competitor. The arrival of these heavy-accented strangers, these magi looking for king of the Jews, sent paranoid Herod into a tizzy. Jealousy and anger gripped his heart. Fortunately, the magi saw through his guise, and they wouldn't enter in this devious plot. But if you look at Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18, it's tragic what he did. In his mad attempt to wipe out a single infant, Herod slaughters dozens. Out of his fear and paranoia. Verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged and he sent and slew all the male children in Bethlehem and its area from two years and under. So the Magi arrived not at the scene of the birth of Christ. Two years and under give us an idea that the Magi came months later, if not a couple of years later. And so he's making sure that this one who's king of the Jews is slaughtered. And this fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah where it talked about the reaping and mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and these things happening. You see, Herod was a paranoid, paranoid ruler, a senseless sovereign. He, he not only neglected, he didn't neglect the Savior, he totally rejected the Savior. He wanted the death of Jesus. He wanted Jesus to die. There are Herod types in our society today. Herod's fear that someone else will take this throne. Lots of people are like him. They won't allow anything to interfere with their career, their position, their power, their ambition, their plans, their lifestyle. They're not about to let someone else be king of their lives. You see, Herod fought because he didn't want anyone else to be king. We fight because we don't want anyone else to be king of our lives. And we should be like the shepherds who bow down and worship the Savior. When he insists on being king of our lives, submit ourselves to him. Submit to him and allow him his rightful place of authority in our lives. But then there are the faithful. There are the faithful who worshipped our Savior. The faithful who were longing and looking for our Savior. Turn back to Luke chapter 2 with me. You've got a bookmark, hopefully, or your Bibles or your notes, iPads, whatever. Beginning in verse 21, we meet two elderly people. When the eighth day was completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, and the name was given by an angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of purification came, the family went there. 
And look at verse 25 in Luke 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was a righteous man and a devout man. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Spirit of God was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he saw the Messiah. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to carry out the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and he did what? He blessed God. Simeon, this aged man, looks at the young couple and at the baby and says, This is he. Now, Lord, your bondservant can depart in peace. You've kept your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. And Simeon proclaims the Messiah has come. Simeon says, Jesus is here. The the Savior of the world is here. And look, look at verse 32. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And he's a glory to all the people. And Simeon, verse 34, blessed them. And then if you drop down, there's another person in verse 36. And there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanel, the, the tribe of Asha. And she was advanced in years as well. And she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then she was a widow to the age of 84. So she's been a widow for many, many years. She never left the temple. She's play, she say, served there day and night praying and fasting. And at the moment she came up and she began giving thanks to God and spoke of him who was the redemption they were looking for. You see, the faithful came and the faithful worshipped. Different responses to Christmas. Unexpected responses. You see, the innkeeper accommodated him, was not necessarily passionate about him. The shepherds, they did accept and praise and glorify God. The religious leaders neglected, the king rejected But you've got two older people who say, this is the Messiah. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Worship team, would you gather up here with me? You see, when we look at all these responses, we have to ask ourselves, what is our response to the Christ child? How are you going to respond to him? What are you going to do? Unexpected responses. It's unexpected when we aren't expecting it to happen. That's what it means, isn't it? It's an interesting story about this family. You recognize them? The lady in the car is Queen Elizabeth, and the young man to her left is Prince Charles. They're now obviously advanced in age. When Charles was 10 years old, the entire family went out to the hillside to get out of London at Christmas time and spend the holiday there. Queen Elizabeth did an unusual thing. She usually has an entourage and bodyguards and protectors, but she arose early one morning and it was beginning to snow. And so she woke up 10-year-old Charles at that time and asked him if he would like to take a ride with her. Of course, he was thrilled. It would just be he and his mom. And they could go out into the British countryside. And there they could enjoy time together. So she actually snuck out of the castle. She took a car headed out into the British countryside, just she and Charles, age 10 at the time. And the snow got heavier and it began to uh, make her visibility difficult. And she went around a turn. As she rounded that turn, she found herself in a ditch. Stuck and she could go no more. So what was she to do? She and Charles got out of the car. They got out of the car and they began to walk. And 
the first thing they came to was a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And so they knocked on the door. And a lady, dressed in her robe and her curlers, answered the door of these unexpected guests. And she stood in the presence of royalty. There at her door was the Queen of England and the Prince. It's interesting to read her response. She said, I invited them in for a spot of tea and told them they could use my phone as long as they wanted. (laughs) you imagine? You open the door and there's the queen. Let me tell you something greater. 2,000 years ago, the doors of heaven opened. And it wasn't a queen. It was the king of kings who came down. They came to a stable. And the king of kings, that little baby, grew into a man who offered his life for you and me. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why it's such a special event. Because royalty has come. And he's knocking on the door of your heart. And he wants to be the savior of your life. And he wants to be the Lord of your life. And he wants to rule your life. And he wants to reign over your life. And he does want you to accept him. But he wants you to do more than accommodate him. He wants you to be passionately in love with him. Because that's what he is with you. So there's only one way to finish this sermon. We've got to celebrate the Savior. The King has knocked on the door. He's come into the world. He's offered himself for you. I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray with you about anything in your life. As we sing and celebrate the King who has come. Would you stand with us?